0: Hi, this is Bob Bostock, and welcome to Discover DEP, the official podcast of the New Jersey Department of Environmental Protection. Each week, we talk with DEP experts about how we protect and preserve New Jersey's air, water, land, and natural and historic resources. So that you'll never miss one of our podcasts, please subscribe to Discover DEP on iTunes or Google Play. You can also follow DEP on the web at nj.gov DEP. Thanks for listening, and I hope you enjoy our podcast. Hi, this is Bob Bostock, and welcome to another edition of Discover DEP. Today we're starting something new. We are embarking on a three-part series, and this three-part series is going to focus on one of New Jersey's greatest natural resources, the Pine Barrens. The Pine Barrens is a unique part of New Jersey's landscape and of our history. From pygmy pines to what are known as ghost forests, the Pine Barrens has a fascinating story. Legendary, environmentally, historically, it's played a huge role in the story of this state for centuries, literally. Today, we are very pleased to have with us Bernie Isaacson, assistant regional forester who is returning to Discover DEP to kick off our three-part series on the Pine Barrens and to give us a forester's assessment of the Pine Barrens, the unique trees that grow there, and how the forest replenishes itself, and just to tell us really all about the vegetation, the flora, if you will, that are in the Pine Barrens. So in this first part of our three-part series, We're going to talk with Bernie about the plants that are supported by the ecology of the Pine Barrens as well as some of the very real challenges that this region, which is uh, as, as robust as it is and as big as it is, is kind of fragile and needs a lot of care. So I hope everybody will stay tuned not only for this episode but for the next two episodes in this series where we will be talking about the animals that are found in the Pine Barrens as well as the history of the area. Uh, over the course of the history of our state, Today we're talking about the forests and the plants in the Pine Barrens, and we are so glad to have Bernie Isaacson back with us. Bernie, thanks for coming back. Thanks for having me. Discover DEP. I think you're our first repeat guest. So uh, now, next time, you know, this time we should have had two stars on the door instead of the usual one star. <laughs> well, thanks thank for being with us. So let's start with the very basics. Where are the Pine Barrens, and what makes them unique from an ecological standpoint?
1: Well, the Pine Barrens are in the outer coastal plain of New Jersey. So this is a large area of sandy soils. That is, there's the the official designation. So the Congress created a Pinelands National Reserve. There's the Pinelands Commission, uh, which has jurisdiction over most of that and some other areas. Uh, And then there's the ecological types of the... Of the area that we know as the Pine Barrens, so the, the forest types, the, the agricultural areas that are supported by those soils, and so this is an area that's across seven counties and fifty-six municipalities of uh, the southeastern por- portion of New Jersey.
0: So, what are the counties that? Uh, Let's see. Pine Barrens there's catch. Ocean,
1: there's Ocean, Burlington, Atlantic, Gloucester, Cumberland, Cape May counties, and Camden, and Camden, and Camden, and Camden. So A seven counties. Of Camden. yes.
0: And you got all seven. I counted them on my fingers to so make sure we didn't leave any <laughs> thank keeping, out. Thank you for keeping track. Yeah, no, we, we don't, want to, uh, don't want to leave any of our counties out. I won't ask you to give us the list of municipalities. <laughs> 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 how many acres are in the Pine Barrens altogether, if you if you think about it, in the largest sense?
1: Sure. So there's more than uh, 1.1 million acres. Depending on how you measure it, there's more than that. But to give sort of a frame of reference, that's about 10% bigger than Rhode Island. And it's about the same size as Grand Canyon National Park. Is that right? So, not the Grand Canyon, but the whole park itself. The whole park. The whole park all and
0: 1.1 1. 1 million acres is about a quarter of the landmass of the state, if
1: I'm uh, not mistaken. Just about a quarter, yeah. Just yep. about a
0: quarter. It's pretty, pretty big. Now, if you've driven through the Pine Barrens or spent any time in them, the first thing you notice is that it kind of looks different from any other part of the state uh, in terms of the trees and, and the different plants that grow there. Tell us a little bit about the flora in the pine barrens and, and why we find it there as mm-hmm. opposed to other parts of the state.
1: That's actually a really excellent question. So pine barrens are, as an as a ecological type, there's examples of pine barrens all across the U.S. actually, from the Midwest, uh, Wisconsin to Maine to New Jersey. These are northern um, sandy soils, pine-dominated ecosystems with high acid soils that are low in fertility. So most of New Jersey's pine barrens in are in the, the southeast. There are a couple of communities on very ridgetops in northwestern New Jersey that are a little bit similar. They've got thin, droughty soils that are very acidic, and they have a lot of the same plants, but those are really small in area. So what makes the Pinelands of New Jersey unique, they're mainly dominated by pine trees go figure with that kind of name uh pitch pitch pine shortleaf pine virginia pine Uh, and then the oaks that you'll find you'll uh, scrub oak blackjack oak chestnut oak some of the better sites scarlet oak black oak post oak white oak in wetlands you'll you'll see things like atlantic white cedar which is a really characteristic type of forest in the pinelands in our pinelands and then red maple sweet bay black gum those hardwoods occupy some of the drainages as well You
0: mentioned the soil is not particularly fertile. It's mostly sandy. I guess it's part of the state in ancient times was underwater. Yes. uh, Why it's called the coastal plain. Mm -hmm. So the trees there don't grow as tall as they do in other parts of the state, for the most part, do they?
1: That depends. There are sites where you can actually get quite tall trees. I've seen pines in southeastern New Jersey that are uh, well in excess of 100 feet. For the most part, uh, there's the perception that the pinelands are poor for growing things. uh, The growth rates are low. And they are in comparison to, say, timber-growing areas of the Pacific Northwest. But it's sort of a misnomer to think of these as poor ecosystems. There's, uh, They're very rich. There's actually relatively good growth rates in a lot of portions of the Pinelands. We just sort of perceive it as being this barren wasteland when it's really not.
0: Yeah. So the species that grow there have adapted to the conditions that
1: are there. Absolutely. There are some which really, is why they're there. That's right. There are some really tough species in the Pinelands. So the idea that the ecosystem is fragile isn't necessarily uh, isn't necessarily wrong, but the individual species, I mean, those are some of the toughest species that I can think of. Pitch pine does not know when to die. It can withstand some of the hottest fires of the trees in the East Coast. And some it, of
0: the pines, if I'm not mistaken, actually... Rely on fires to
1: propagate. Yes. So a lot of the so the whole ecosystem is a disturbance dependent ecosystem. Historically fire has been the thing that played, you know, the major disturbance role. Atlantic White Cedar, which can't survive fires, is still dependent in some ways upon fire. And it handles, you know, anoxic conditions in saturated soils that other tree species can't handle. And so you've got a lot of really tough individual species that can handle this rough environment and be very productive.
0: Do the trees that grow in the pine barrens uh, have commercial value as uh, for wood products or things
1: like that? Absolutely, they've they've long had commercial value. So cedar cedar has long had the most commercial value in the pinelands. Some portions of the cedar resource in the state have been cut cut over uh, six times uh, since white settlement. But there's long been a wood products industry for uh, for different uh, wood products from different species. So cross ties from some of the hardwood species, uh, dimensional lumber, shortleaf pine, for example. USDA had a has a book about the life history of shortleaf pine and in it, it says shortleaf pine was made for the saw and shortleaf <laughs> pine you know occupied a lot of area in in our pinelands and still exists in a lot of places uh, and so dimensional lumber has uh, has been a portion um, charcoal it was a the the pine resource was a major uh, supply for charcoal for the industries of our region and helped to build our region like you were mentioning at the beginning of this
0: Yeah, there were some uh, iron furnaces, iron foundries and furnaces in the Pine
1: Barrens. Quite a lot of them. And a lot of them required so much wood and so much charcoal that some areas would be cut, on a clear cut on a rotation of 20 years. So that means go back in and cut everything every 20 years. And they consumed so much wood that uh, a lot of the forests were in a pretty empty condition, a pretty barren condition where there wasn't a lot uh, available and growing. And that's one of the things that makes the condition of our forests unique today, is that this is the first time since European settlement that we've really had extensive areas with old, Older trees that made it past so that 20 year age and so there's good to that and there's also some challenges from that
0: so harvesting of trees is pretty well regulated at this point
1: Harvesting of trees is very well regulated. So at the statewide level, we have a 6 to 1 growth to removals ratio. That's from the U.S. Forest Service. So there's a lot more wood that's growing in our forests than we're removing. And that's a good thing. But for the pines, that creates a very special challenge. And there's increased regulations for good reasons for in, in some cases for how much can be harvested and where and when and for what purposes. But that does create a very significant series of obstacles to solving some of our ecological problems.
0: What are
1: some of those obstacles? Well, sure. So ecological problems, uh, de- forest density is really one of the things that's a problem in the pines. So we've got, forest density causes a number of problems. For one, fuels. A lot of people think of fuels and forest fires, and uh, forest fire being the major disturbance type. If you have too much f- fuel, so things that'll burn in a wildfire, you can have fire conditions that are really dangerous. So in 1963, there was a, several fires burned 190,000 acres of the state in the I want to say a day. And there's more and more people moving into areas close to or in the Pinelands. Um, And so we've got this very large wildland urban interface, which is a problem that's common to other parts of the country, the Mountain West, California. And so that creates challenges. But increased density also poses problems for the trees themselves. So when there's more trees on the site, than the the site can handle. Say um, there's a concept we call growing space. So it's how much sunlight, water, nutrients are available to the plants that grow on that site. There's only a finite amount of growing space on every site, but if you disperse that and divide it amongst all the different trees in the site, then the trees compete with each other, and that's natural. But the severe levels of competition where trees are killing each other as fast as they can, and there's not much of a buffer for each individual tree, means that they're all stressed. That causes problems like increased pests. So Southern Pine Beetle, which is a native insect, uh, takes advantage of those stressed trees and can cause massive eruptions and kill off tens of thousands of acres of healthy trees because of being able to get started in stressed trees. And so that forest density is a real problem from those, from those perspectives.
0: Speaking of trees dying off, we're, we're hearing more and more about something that is being called ghost forests mm-hmm. along uh, our coastal forests, not in, just in New Jersey, but I understand up and down the Atlantic coast. That's right. What is a ghost forest? And what is causing
1: it? It's a fun term. Uh, it's been appropriated for this use. What they, what folks mean when they say ghost forest. Areas of forest that are dying out because the case of Atlantic white cedar, saltwater inundation. So this is as with increased sea level rise. When you have a storm event, it pushes saltwater further inland onto areas that previously hadn't experienced saltwater. Atlantic white cedar can't handle salt. And so once that salt water gets pushed up onto their soils, their their wetland soils, the salt remains even after the water drains out, and that's toxic to those trees. And so they die, and we're left with a standing dead forest.
0: So after Superstorm Sandy, Mm -hmm. when we had huge tidal surges, uh, that really exacerbated the problem. Absolutely. Do those ghost forests eventually recover? Does the salt eventually disperse or leach out of the soil? What, what's the, what are the future prospects for ghost forests?
1: So salt does eventually leach out of soils, but in this case those areas are pretty much gone for good for Atlantic white cedar. Uh, so salt can leach out of soil, but the rate that it leaches out of soil is a lot slower than the frequency of times that that's going to be inundated again with salt. And so we might get a little bit of loss of of salt from leaching, but those soils are pretty much gone for Atlantic White Cedar.
0: So are there other species, though, that can uh, survive in that sort of soil that will move in and populate that area?
1: Absolutely. So this is not necessarily civil, sea level rise, the causes of it, but sea level rise as a as a concept is a natural process that's occurred for millions of years. And if you go into the soil profiles up and down the coast, there are good examples of different plant communities that occupied areas further out on the continental shelf, you know, on our barrier islands. And so forests, can plant communities, they migrate up and down with coastal rise. Those areas will probably be occupied by herbaceous communities, and we'll have more meadow wetlands.
0: So it's not as if it's a total barren place forever somebody else moves in.
1: Absolutely not. One thing about ghost forest and this term, ghost forest, when I hear ghost forest, I don't think of those areas as being lost to ecology. But the areas that I do think of for the term ghost forest you know, Atlantic white cedar used to occupy over a hundred thousand acres in New Jersey, and now it occupies between twenty and thirty thousand. So, to me, the ghost forest is the resource that we used to have that is missing. All those wetland forests that used to support cedar that no longer do. I see that as a a ghost when I walk around the yeah. woods.
0: But it's part of the kind of the natural evolution of life on a dynamic planet.
1: It is. It is. Forests change, and disturbances cause change. A lot of the change that we've seen is. Uh, human-driven, mm-hmm. and in the last 400 years, we've done quite a bit to reduce that acreage of cedar. I'd like to see that acreage increase. There's New Jersey is one of the few states that has a significant cedar, Atlantic white cedar resource, um, and so this is a globally rare ecosystem and something that I think that we should be managing more for.
0: What other uh, th- threats are there to the health of the forests and the and the floor in the pine barrens, uh, both natural and and uh, threats from development?
1: So there's areas that we can think of as land use change where you have an area that gets paved over say with a parking lot and you go from a land use that has uh, plant communities on it to one that has human houses and you know commercial business buildings those direct threats are ones that people are very familiar with but there's also a series of indirect threats beyond things like forest density and fire risk and insect outbreaks and that indirect threat to me has to do with the Relationship that New Jerseyans have with their forests, and that New Jerseyans have with their natural resources. If I can, I'd like to quote uh, Aldo Leopold, sure. a Sand County almanac. He yep. was a, a famous conservationist. Now he's talking about a farm here, but I would say it has to do with any natural spaces. There are two sp- spiritual dangers in not owning a farm one is the danger of supposing that breakfast comes from the grocery, and the other is that heat comes from the furnace. So there's a very strong relationship between rural land uses and the ecosystems that support those land uses. One challenge that we have in New Jersey is increased urbanization, which means increased proportion of the population living away from their natural resources. We have a ton of demand for natural resources in New Jersey, and we don't necessarily meet that demand from our own land, and so, That so many people are so abstract from our natural environments like the Pinelands. Even though those lands have been part of our history for centuries and part of the history of human occupation of this state for thousands of years, those folks don't realize that they are not separated from that forest and that their actions do impact that forest. And so the relationship between people and the land is the thing that concerns me most. I'm more concerned about that than I am about any specific development. Or any specific direct effect.
0: Yeah, I think it's important for all of us to remember that we are a part of nature, not apart from nature.
1: Absolutely, yeah. there's no there's no imaginary boundary. There's no actual boundary. It's all just you know in the human imagination that that creates that separation.
0: And there's nothing like I I've, we were mentioning before we started recording. Um, when I was in Scouts, we took an annual canoe trip down the Wading River in the early spring, and even though for me that was many, many decades ago, uh, the memories of that and the appreciation for the uniqueness of the Pine Barrens remains with me in a very, very real sense. That's
1: wonderful. Uh,
0: You know, spending time in the outdoors, in our forests, in our state parks, wildlife management areas, uh, gives one an appreciation for uh, not only the natural beauty that exists, Mm -hmm. But uh, also an appreciation for the fact that, uh, as our scout always told us, we had to leave every place we went in better shape than we found it. Yeah, that's where the rules are So we didn't just clean up our own stuff. We'd sweep the campground area, and if we found other litter there, we'd pick it up and carry it out with us. Mm-hmm. Thank you for uh, doing <laughs> that. <then. laughs> because we all have a responsibility, I think, to enjoy our natural resources in a way that enables future generations to be able to enjoy them as well.
1: Absolutely. One thing that concerns me about the sort of perspective we have is that we think because we have tighter controls and we have extra jurisdictions set up to manage our pinelands, and to manage our natural resources in New Jersey, that somehow we've solved a lot of the problems of natural resources um, and natural resource exploitation. But all that does is really push those stresses onto other locations. So the Douglas fir that you go when you buy and buy dimensional lumber at uh, a hardware store or a lumber yard in New Jersey, that Douglas fir didn't come from New Jersey. And so we've pushed our resource consumption off someplace else. And so the results of that impact of our consumption and demand are not felt locally. So a reflection, a reflection of those needs needs to show up on our landscapes so that people can see how their everyday life interacts with the forest so that that spiritual, that spiritual relationship that people have with the forest, they can uh, be tender with their resource use beyond just camping or recreational uses.
0: Yeah, we have to make sure we don't love our, our forests and natural resources to death. Absolutely. <laughs> Just in the uh, few minutes we have remaining, tell us some of what DEP is doing uh, specifically, not only as a department, but in partnership with other organizations to protect the pine barrens for future generations.
1: Absolutely. Well, we have in forestry, the state lands management team, which I'm a part of, uh, is working to develop natural resource stewardship plans for state parcels. So this is coming up with 10-year management plans in conjunction with our, the biologists and other programs within DEP, uh, as well as the science and regulatory staff at the Pinelands Commission and outside stakeholder groups that are interested and care about our natural resources. So that's, that's one effort. Another effort, we're working on a strategic action plan for Atlantic white cedar to try and put some of those acres of cedar back. in in our systems, in our wetland systems throughout the pines. And then there's a lot of work that private lands forestry does within State Forest Service and then a whole army of consulting foresters do to work with private landowners to steward their forests properly. Some of the nicest Forest management I've seen in healthiest ecosystems can, a lot of them occur on private lands. It's a beautiful thing that so many folks get together in, in the public lands process, but there's also some really good private landowners out there who are managing their properties very well.
0: Yeah, it's stewardship in the fullest sense of the word. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, we have only just begun to scratch the surface of our three-part series on the Pine Barrens, and uh, really appreciate Bernie taking time out to return to Discover DEP to tell us about the forests in the Pine Barrens, what makes them unique and special, and uh, a resource here in New Jersey that has been a part of the history of this state for as long as there have been people in this state, That's right. and that due to the good work that uh, our Forest Service is doing, DEP is doing, as well as many other organizations with which we partner, uh, the Pine Gardens will continue to be an important part of this the history and the culture, really, of this state uh, for many, many generations to come. So I want to thank Bernie very much for taking time out of his uh, very busy day. This is probably his favorite time of year to be outside in the forest because (laughs) the weather's been so beautiful. Come in and sit in a uh, closed room here in Trenton. Uh, Appreciate you making that sacrifice. Thanks for having me. And and, uh, we're glad to have you back. And uh, we hope that our next two podcasts, uh, the next one which we'll cover the animals that live in the Pine Barrens, and the last one will cover the history of the Pine Barrens and and, uh, some of the stories that have emanated out of that region of our state. I hope you'll uh, be sure to listen to those as well. So, Bernie, again, thank you so much. It's great to see you again, and we really appreciate your sharing your knowledge and expertise about the Pine Barrens with
1: all of us. Thanks for giving me the opportunity to, to talk with you about the pines, and I'm glad you care about it so much. Thank you.
0: Thanks for listening to Discover DEP. If you have comments on the podcast or ideas for future podcast topics, please email us at podcast at Enjoy the rest of your day.